Our culture is increasingly shackled by quote-unquote required beliefs. Have you noticed? Stated or unstated, these are values that we somehow must embrace. Among them is the idea that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. But do we? Well, coming up, biblical evidence that we do not worship the same God. Plus, Bible questions that have been puzzling you. And right now, I'll look at current events in the Middle East. Welcome to The Land and the Book, the one-hour flyover of the Middle East from Moody Radio. Our host, our captain, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm his co-pilot, John Geiger. Charlie, again, a huge week in the Middle East. It is. You know, following your analogy, it's fasten your seatbelt. It could be a bit of turbulence. (laughs) Well, let's dig into this week's uh, stories. Last week, of course, we looked at the dramatic Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. What has been happening in that country since? You know, the word that best describes the situation is chaos. Uh, Several have been killed trying to reach the airport to be evacuated because the Taliban and other terrorist groups are controlling the access points. Uh, It's really unclear whether everyone that needs to get out will get out in time. Though promising amnesty, uh, these groups that are now controlling Afghanistan have reportedly been going house to house looking for Westerners as well as Afghanis who in any way helped or cooperated with the West. They'd previously compiled a list of people they believed had worked with U.S.-led forces. The Taliban have also taken over huge stockpiles of high-tech weapons that we supplied to the Afghan army. While the Taliban have publicly talked about establishing a more inclusive government, it appears what they mean by that is they're going to include other terror groups linked both to al-Qaeda and perhaps even ISIS. One insurgent who still has a $5 million U.S. bounty on his head was put in charge of security in Kabul. The coalition's goal is to return to strict Islamic law. There have been reports of some women caught outside not wearing burqas being shot. Members of a Shiite minority group were also tortured and killed, in part because the radical Sunni Islamists consider Shiites not to be true Muslims. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair summed up the feeling of many leaders in the West when he said the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was tragic, dangerous, and unnecessary. Uh, What I said last week is becoming even more clear. In a very brief span of time, the hard-fought campaign to dislodge the Taliban and eliminate al-Qaeda has been undone. Instead, we're giving them a spot where they can strengthen and resume their goal of exporting radical Islam throughout the world. We've also shown the world, friend and foe alike, that the U.S. promises to protect our allies are nothing more than words on paper, and that when the going gets tough, Any country that depends on the U.S. for its protection could find itself standing alone. Hmm. Uh, Finally, we've set the stage for future attacks against U.S. interests around the world, including in our own country. Uh, We need to remember that before September 11, al-Qaeda, based in Afghanistan, also attacked hotels where U.S. forces were housed in Yemen, a facility in Saudi Arabia where U.S. forces were training, the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and U.S. naval vessels in Yemen. Then came 9-11 and the attacks here in the U.S. These groups believe they have a score to settle, and they believe U.S. strength and influence is now on the decline. What we're seeing in Afghanistan isn't the end. Press coverage will eventually die down, and the world's attention will turn elsewhere. But my concern is that what we're seeing is just a prelude to another onslaught of terrorism in the years ahead. Wow, not good, not good from any perspective. Well, the Palestinian Islamic Council accused Israel of working to undermine the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount. Just how valid is that claim, Charlie? 
Yeah, this council is the highest body in charge of Muslim affairs among Palestinians, so the charge in that sense is significant. Now, many in the West might assume they're simply saying Israel's trying to undermine the importance of the site for Muslims, but they mean it in an all-too-literal sense. They charged Israel with conducting excavations designed to literally destroy the mosque to allow Israel to rebuild the Third Temple. They issued the change to coincide with the anniversary of the burning of the pulpit in the Al-Aqsa Mosque by a deranged Australian Christian back in 1969. Now, anyone who takes time to look at the evidence can clearly see how false the claim really is. Israel's been excavating in the area of a former parking lot outside the walls of the old city and across the street from the Dung Gate. They've also excavated in the original city of David next to that parking lot, and they've excavated along the outside of the southwestern and western retaining wall on which the temple once stood. But they have not excavated underneath the retaining wall, nor have they excavated underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. The only ones who've dug in that area are the Muslims when they carved out an area several years ago to build an underground mosque. That activity almost caused the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount to collapse, and that could potentially have taken the Al-Aqsa Mosque with it. Now, at its heart, this is an attempt by the Muslim authorities to counter all the overwhelming archaeological evidence that has been uncovered showing that Jerusalem was a Jewish city in Old and New Testament times. Israel isn't trying to Judaize Jerusalem. It's these Muslim authorities who are trying to wipe away the clear archaeological and historical evidence showing Israel's intimate connection to the city. Hmm. Well, you're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is an Old Testament authority, Israel expert, having traveled there many, many times. Let's talk about Bethsaida. It was called the Lost City of the Gospels because its location was in doubt for so long. But now, two different archaeologists claim to have uncovered the site, except it's at two different locations. So which one is correct? Well, it depends. Uh, Over the past several decades, the clear favorite has been a site called Etel. It has solid archaeological evidence from the Old and New Testament times showing it was a significant city. Uh, The problem with the site is that it's a mile from the Sea of Galilee, and Bethsaida was known in the New Testament as a fishing town. Another archaeologist believes he discovered the real Bethsaida about a mile south, right along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that site is called El Araj. It's a much smaller site, but initial excavations uncovered part of a mosaic floor, which the archaeologist believes is from a Byzantine church. Now, he thinks that's significant because of a report from an 8th century pilgrim who described walking from Capernaum to Chorazin via the Church of the Apostles in Bethsaida. Now, his goal last year was to continue excavating to verify that the mosaic was indeed part of a church. He even hoped to find an inscription confirming the identity of the church. Now, unfortunately, last year's heavy rain caused the level of the lake to rise, flooding part of the excavation area. And that was accompanied by the pandemic, which prohibited volunteers from coming to excavate. So right now, we don't know which site is correct. Now, personally, I think the site identified 20 years ago is probably the one. It's a large site, and it seems to be a better match. Uh, Bethsaida was a city built by Herod the Great's son, Philip. Now, archaeological remains were uncovered, showing that at least some individuals living at that site were fishermen, even though it's a mile from the lake. And even if the remains at the alternate site turn out to be those of a church, 
Well, that church dates back to the Byzantine period, hundreds of years after the time of the New Testament. Hmm. Early Christians could have been just as confused as more recent explorers and opt to build the church closer to the water by mistake. But the bottom line is until archaeological evidence is found that clearly identifies one of the sites as the actual city built by Herod Philip, I'm not sure this debate's going to be resolved. I guess not. Well, Israeli scientists have developed a drug to treat COVID that has allowed 88% of patients treated to leave the hospital in a matter of days. What are the details of this latest innovation from Amazing Israel? Yeah, as the COVID virus continues to mutate, I think this could prove to be a significant development. Israel's Ministry of Health has approved the expanded use of the drug, which was developed by Bonus Bio Group. So far, the treatment has been undergoing phase one and phase two trials to determine its safety and efficacy. Of the first 16 people treated, 14 were released from the hospital one day after receiving their final dose. The initial data showed a 40% decrease in lung inflammation in the first five days after treatment. One month later, lung inflammation was down to 1%. Because of the overwhelmingly positive results, Israel's health officials have now expanded the trial. The drug consists of specific activated cells isolated from healthy donors that are able to reduce inflammation and alleviate respiratory distress. The company believes the treatment could eventually be used to treat other illnesses like lower respiratory tract infections, asthma, and even COPD. Now, let's hope the drug continues to produce such dramatic results with an equal level of safety. Uh, It looks like the COVID virus in its ever-changing form is just simply going to be around for a while. And this frontline treatment that's now being developed and tested in Israel could make the difference in many lives currently being lost to the disease. Coming up, a conversation about whether or not Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Then after that, Charlie, you're back to answer listener questions that have come to us via email. Then it's a devotional. Where are we headed today? Well, we're going to continue the uh, devotional we started last week, the four wise animals in Proverbs 30. We're going to look at the last two of those animals. Our email address, if you'd like to connect with us, is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Coming up, Christians and Muslims, do they worship the same God? Some biblical answers next. If you explore themes of religious conversations at all, you cannot escape the dialogue that is being pushed upon us as believers in Jesus that perhaps, perhaps we should consider the God of Islam is equal to or the same thing as the God that we worship. Is that true? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? That's a question we'll dig into next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to segment two of the broadcast. I'm John Geiger. Before we get to our uh, our focus today, I want us to pause and think about a new way that we can reach out with the love of Jesus to our Muslim friends. I wonder if some of the times you and I don't engage our Muslim friends in conversation is because we feel Maybe like we don't really understand Islam as we should. We don't have that deeper knowledge. Should that be a barrier for us? Stefano Fair with Call of Hope, I got to ask you, should that be a barrier? Not at all. I mean, sure, if you want to reach out to Muslims, the Lord might give it on your heart that you also try to learn something about Islam. But, hey, if you want to reach out and reach somebody for Christ, 
do it. <laughs> Why would you have to know a lot about Islam? You know a lot about your faith, I yes. hope, yeah. and about your relationship with Jesus. And this is what is important. So let the Muslim know what is important to you. That's the most important thing. And then I know many people think, oh, but then I could make a mistake and... Well, then make the mistake. Yeah. That, that's okay, you know. <laughs> they, they would know, they would understand uh, you're not doing that because you want to offend them. Yeah, isn't there a certain amount of grace extended anyway because you have expressed interest in their belief and you're, you're working that into the conversation? Absolutely. And you see, at the end, we have to understand we are not the ones to persuade them anyway. Yeah. The Lord will do it. So, hey, if we make a mistake, the Lord can get it right. I love it. That's great reassurance from Stefano Fair with Call of Hope. More about their ministry at callofhopeus.org. We are really excited to connect again with Dr. Andy Bannister, who is director of the Solace Center for Public Christianity, holds a PhD in Islamic studies, so he knows just a thing or two about our subject. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Uh, there was so much to discuss in our first conversation. We said, we got to do this again. And so welcome back, Andy, to The Land and the Book. Thanks, John. Great to be back with you. It does uh, seem to me that this conversation is being had uh, with increasing frequency. And more importantly, I feel a sense of pressure from the culture and oddly enough, sometimes in certain uh, corners of the church, that I should somehow agree that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Is it your sense that this is a dialogue that's happening with increasing frequency? I think so. And I think that's happening for a couple of reasons, John. Firstly, of course, the number of Muslims uh, is increasing. Here in the UK, where I live, we've got many, many more Muslims coming through immigration and, and so forth. So you're more likely for Muslims and Christians to encounter each other. Same is going on in, in the USA and, and Canada. So I think simply more Muslims around means that the society as a whole is thinking about, well, how do we navigate the world of religious diversity? And of course, Christians are encountering Muslims more and more and more. And the temptation, I think, given religious diversity could be, we've got to find out a way to live together and so the best way to live together peacefully is push the narrative that we all believe the same, because if we all believe the same, we can just get along. And I think that's where it's it's coming from. It's the sort of sort of panicky response to the increasingly religious age that we find ourselves living in, quite frankly. You know, when I have uh, conversations with my friends, uh, I, I, I'm tempted right away to just jump to the chase and say, okay, we're going to find out where we stand on everything with one simple question, who is Jesus? And uh, you, you do that in your chapter, The Misfit Messiah. You point out in the Bible, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is far more than just another prophet. This is made clear by the fact that on almost every page of the New Testament, Jesus is depicted as receiving worship. And in Judaism, worship was due to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, meaning Jesus is God. And yet that is a huge point of... Uh, of crystallization or dividing, if you will, in any conversation. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I think it's definitely the dividing point, right? I mean, Jesus himself would regularly ask people, who do you say that I am? And even in the first century, that was the great divider between those who believed the claims he made and those who wanted to you know, kill him as a blasphemer and so on. And the same is, is true today. But the thing I do in the book, um, I think, John, that could be helpful is very often when people ask, why do Christians believe what we believe about Jesus? We leap into our favorite proof text and, and so on, you know, John 8, 58, or wherever we like to go. And that could be helpful, but I think sometimes it could be even more helpful to pull the camera lens back and look at a wider angle shot, 
which is why in the book I begin with the question of worship. And you know, it's fascinating when you look all through Christian history, every Christian group worshipped Jesus. Even the even the unorthodox ones worshipped Jesus. That was what made them Christian. All over the New Testament, uh, from the later books to the earlier ones, Jesus is, is worshipped. Christians pray to him, they give him exalted titles, they baptise in his name, they cast out demons in his name, they heal in his name, on and on it goes. And I say in the book, that really poses a, a dilemma. Either you have to conclude that Jesus was the most useless religious teacher ever, he didn't want his followers to do that, but he failed to communicate it. Or you have to conclude he did and said and acted uh, things in such a way that when he then rose from the dead, his followers concluded that everything he said was true and they began to worship him. And then in the book, I just look at four or five examples. And there are many if we had time. But, for example, you know, the, the healing of the paralytic, the story of the young man lowered through the roof. Uh, Jesus forgives the, the young man's sins. Uh, the religious leaders go nuts. And then Jesus says, well, to, to show that I have authority to forgive sins, let me heal the guy. And he does that healing miracle to, to vindicate his ability to forgive sins. But, of course, in Judaism, only God could forgive sins and the temple is the place to do it. Or you might look right the way through to, you know, the, his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, where the high priest says to Jesus, you know, are you the son of the most high? And rather than simply say uh, no, which would have been the right answer if he didn't want to make that claim, Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, the, uh, the high priest, very, very Christological passage in the Old Testament about the, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and being enthroned there next to Yahweh. And of course, the high priest rends his robes, cries blasphemy and sends Jesus out to be killed. And there's lots of examples where Jesus does this, makes these very exalted claims such that you could understand, actually, why the religious leadership, you know, had to, were forced to this conclusion. Well, either he's telling the truth or he's a blasphemer, mm -hmm. and they went the blasphemer route. But, of course, I think the resurrection is, you know, actually the whole table's being turned and showing that everything he said was true. And you put those two pieces together, the worship and the reason for it, and you've got a very powerful narrative to explain both to our Muslim friends and, in fact, our Jewish friends and our secular friends this is why, as Christians, we believe Jesus was far more than just another religious leader or teacher. So what do we do with a typical Muslim response? Uh, and they would say, well, you know, that might be in your Bible, but your Bible is corrupted. Well, there's a number of ways you can respond to that. If you're somebody who likes to think a little bit more, you know, there are some great books you can read on, you know, why the Bible is reliable. And it's good to have some of that stuff in your armory. But sometimes I actually find it helpful with Muslims because our Muslim friends believe in God, that actually we could be a little bit perhaps more religious in our answer. And what I will often say to Muslims who say that to me, the Bible has been corrupted, I'll often say, OK, let me let me understand what you're saying here. You're telling me that all of the previous scriptures and the Quran talks about the previous scriptures quite positively, actually. So, so I'm saying to my Muslim friend, all those previous scriptures that came before the Quran, you're telling me that, uh, that Allah allowed those to become corrupted and unreliable. Tell me, was that because he was too weak to protect them? And thus you have a God who is powerless, or is it he simply couldn't be bothered? He knew that humans needed them to, to know the truth, but Allah had better things to do. I don't know, he was off on a holiday or a vacation or something, and he simply couldn't be bothered to protect them. Which is it? Do you have a powerless God or a careless God? On the other hand, I believe in a God whose word stands forever, as it says in the book of Isaiah. You know, I believe that Yahweh is perfectly capable of protecting his scripture. Why do you not believe in a God who is equally as powerful? Hmm. That could be a slightly provocative way of handling it, but it forces, I think, the issue, John, that if you say scripture has become corrupted, you are sort of implying that God didn't have the ability to look after it. 
Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? That's the question we're looking at from several angles today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. With me is Andy Bannister, who's written the book by that title, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? Andy, I've had uh, several conversations with Muslims where I've pointed out that Jesus claimed to be God, quoting actual scripture. But uh, even offering to show them in my Bible or theirs, this point is never engaged, never allowed. It's a non-starter. Why is that? I think because once you uh, allow it, of course, once you allow that kind of sort of foot in the door for Muslims, the whole edifice begins to crack at uh, at that point. Because I think it really does come down to the question of Jesus and his, and his identity. And in one sense, our Muslim friends, I want to you know commend for having recognised that. But I think what you can do is I find it can find it helpful sometimes in conversation with Muslims, John, to bring together Jesus and Muhammad. And, uh, you know, because that way you could start a conversation by saying, well, why don't you tell me what you believe about Muhammad and why you think he's significant? Let me in turn talk to you about Jesus and why I think he's significant. And let's compare those two leaders. Let's just compare Jesus on Muhammad. Uh, and of course, I think it's a slightly unfair comparison, actually, because I think Christians here have, uh, have much more to talk about than our Muslim friends do uh, with Muhammad. Um, but I think that is the issue for Muslims. Once they begin to recognize there might be more going on, then I think um, the whole edifice, as I say, can begin to crack. But questions are a great way forward here. I think it can be helpful to say to your Muslim friends, well, tell me what you do know about Jesus and how do you know it's true? You know, how do you know the Quran is true? How do you know Muhammad really was a prophet? We only have his word, incidentally. Our Muslim friends are in a similar position to our Mormon friends. You know, Joseph Smith goes into the woods, sees an angel. Nobody else saw it. His, his word only. Muhammad goes up the mountain, sees an angel. Nobody else sees it. Whereas Jesus did what he did in the full public light of, of history. You know, the, for the resurrection, we have eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness, that list in 1 Corinthians. So I think beginning to compare Jesus and Muhammad to a probe with our Muslim friends, why they believe what they believe, and then just keep bringing it back to Jesus, while, of course, praying, because ultimately the Holy Spirit yes. is going to have to draw people to himself. It's not just our clever arguments. Yeah, I, I've never argued anybody into the kingdom, uh, speaking for myself. <laughs> Let me ask you— uh, <laughs> Amen. Same here. What, uh, what is an important chapter in this book that we haven't yet addressed? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Well, one of my favorite chapters, uh, John, is the last chapter, chapter 9, where I really land it evangelistically. And uh, what I do in that chapter is really bring it into to bear around uh, around Luke chapter 15, which you remember is the, is the story in the Gospels. Jesus tells the parable of the father with the two sons. We sometimes call it the story of the prodigal son. But actually, Jesus says this is a father who has two sons. And I think actually both of those stories, both those sons in that story represent ways to be separated from God. You can have the, you know, the younger rebellious son who you know, wishes his father dead, grabs a third of the family inheritance, runs away, wastes it, ends up feeding pigs, hits rock bottom and has to come creeping back and then but there's the elder son who's separated from his father by his legalistic approach to things you know if you remember he ends up you know having a screaming uh, hissy fit with his dad out there in the field uh, you know all these years i've kept all the commands you asked me to do uh, and so on and so forth and i say that in that parable in that story rather we see i think illustrated actually the way that mu many muslims are separated from god they are law keepers but they've missed the grace and the love of God. And of course, Jesus was addressing that parable to Pharisees, who in many ways were first century Muslims. And I think there's so much wisdom there in that story that Jesus taught about how we then present this winsomely to Muslims and invite them to come on in 
which is the father's invitation to the older son at the end of that chapter. You know, come back into the feast. Come on in. The door is open. The feast has begun. You know, put aside your your legalistic self-righteousness and be reconciled. And I think that's what we want to be saying to our Muslim friends. At the end of the day, I'm not interested in demonstrating that Christianity is superior to Islam or winning cheap philosophical arguments. I want my Muslim friends to come on home to the love and forgiveness of God that's there in Christ. So chapter nine is my favorite chapter in, in that book, largely, I guess, because I'm an evangelist at heart. That's beautifully summed up. Andy Bannister, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Hey, where do you see evangelicals leaning in this conversation today? Are we moving toward a more robust understanding of our faith and its clear distinctions from Islam? Or are we sort of homogenizing our beliefs, surrendering critical thinking and critical theology for a shallow sense of peace and harmony? I think there are two uh, there are two sort of equal but opposite errors I see going on, John. I, I call them fear or fudge. There's the fudge thing, which is where we go, well, let's begin watering our beliefs down a little bit. We don't want to cause difficulty. We want to all get along. So let's perhaps speak a bit less confidently about the things that we believe and, and just be comfortable that, you know, Muslims are, you know, people of faith or Abrahamic believers and so forth. So that's sort of the fudge approach. But the other the other side of things is is we can be so afraid of Muslims. We're afraid of the numbers who are coming in. We read the media and see reports about terrorism and so forth, and we assume all Muslims are like that with the result that we become incredibly strident, almost rude, and we actually drive people away. And I think the gospel cuts through both those positions, because Jesus never compromised in his interaction with those who believe differently. Look at his, you know, uh, his willingness to take a stand for truth. Mm. But he also, of course, ultimately loved people so much that he laid his life down for them and were called to the same. If, even if Muslims were our enemies, Jesus told us how to treat our enemies, we're to love them and lay our lives down too and take up our cross. So I think the challenge for evangelicals is holding together love and truth. Let's love our Muslim friends and neighbors self-sacrificially, but let's hold on to truth as we do that. And the gospel brings both those things together. A perfect place to land this conversation. Very stimulating. And Andy, I want to thank you for joining us today on The Land and the Book. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you. Look for his book, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Your friend and mine, Charlie Dyer, is next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Nice to have your company today. Hope your day's going well. My name is John Geiger, if we haven't met, and the guy I want you to meet is Dr. Charlie Dyer, former pastor, frequent Israel traveler, and a gentleman that's always glad to entertain your questions. All it takes is a quick email, thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you connect. Charlie, you, uh, you give these uh, questions that come in serious thought, don't you? I do, because the teacher in me says if someone takes the time to write a question, if it's important to them, then it's important to me. And I want to be able to provide an answer that takes them further into the Word of God. Well, we have quite an assortment of important questions we're going to hope to get to today, starting with Rose's. She says, I love the land and the book and look forward to hearing it each week. If I miss it for any reason, I immediately go to the podcast. Well, thanks for letting us know about that, Rose. Her question is about a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. A woman must not wear men's clothing nor should a man dress up in woman's clothing. For anyone who does this is offensive to the Lord your God. What's uh, what's going on here, Charlie? Yeah, and that prohibition against men and women wearing others' clothing, you know, when you first look at it in that context, it really seems like an oddly placed command. But 
within that larger context, there's a, a fancy structure called a chiasm taking place. That is, uh, Moses begins in verse 5 with dress regulations. And then you get down to verses 11 and 12, and he ends with other dress regulations. In between, he gives regulations regarding animals in verses 6 and 7. And then he gives regulations regarding animals in verse 10. And then right in the middle, he has regulations regarding a house in verse 8 and a field in verse 9. Uh, so it's, it's like he's trying to talk about uh, the issues of, of life, if you will. Uh, so it, there's a reason for it being the way it is order-wise. But the bigger question, of course, is what is the meaning of this command in verse 5? And, and like so many other commands, I suspect there's more to it than meets the modern eye. Early church writers thought this command was given because of practices associated with the worship of Astarte or Astara or Ishtar, depending on which culture it was. Unfortunately, we don't have direct evidence to help us know if pagan worship was indeed behind the command. It could also be that God gave the command to have Israel maintain a distinction between the sexes and to avoid any blurring of sexual roles. And we do know that that keeps reoccurring throughout the Mosaic Law. Here's a question. I know God is righteous and just, but I struggle with Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. The passage says, suppose a man comes across a virgin who is not engaged and overpowers and rapes her and they're discovered. The man who has raped her must pay her father 50 shekels of silver and she must become his wife because he has violated her. He may never divorce her as long as he lives. I cannot comprehend why God would allow a rape to occur and why the woman would then have to be married to the man. What's the intent here? What am I not seeing or understanding? Yeah, and I think we need to begin by realizing God isn't in any way approving of rape in that passage. Sadly, in the Near East, like in many places today, laws to protect women from sexual violence were almost non-existent. That's why I see this command here as an attempt to provide a measure of protection for a woman who had been raped. By being forced to pay the bride price of 50 shekels and then not being allowed to divorce her, the law was proclaiming the girl's innocence and honor in a society that placed a great deal of emphasis on honor and the importance of it versus shame. And by the way, this emphasis can be seen in the entire section where sexual purity and marital faithfulness are covered in multiple laws. Now, this particular command also offered a measure of protection and support for any child who might be born, since it obligated the man to provide permanent support for both the mother and the child. But again, I don't see God approving of rape here. Rather, right. he's providing a way for a woman who had been raped to avoid being shamed or treated as an outcast in that society. God was declaring her to be the innocent victim, while the man was required to assume responsibility for his actions. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Questions and Answers is our topic this segment. Greg asks, when does Israel get the land that was promised according to the borders mentioned in the Bible, since in the millennium, Jesus reigns over the whole world? Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. The borders were originally promised to Israel in Numbers 34. It gives the specific outlines. But then in Ezekiel 40 to 43, uh, we're given those outlines, and it's the identical outlines again, at a time when uh, Israel's going to inherit the promised land during the millennium. We know in that section, in fact, Ezekiel 40 through 43, 
God describes the building of a new temple. Uh, the glory of the Lord enters that temple via the Mount of Olives to sit on a throne and rule over all. And that's followed by this relisting of the boundaries of the land found in chapter 47 specifically, and the division of that land among the tribes of Israel in chapter 48. Now that sequence of events that Ezekiel provides is what leads me to believe Israel gets the land at the time of the Messiah's return and the rebuilding of the millennial temple. Indeed, Jesus will rule over all the earth. But he does so from Jerusalem with Israel back in the land that God had promised them, ultimately fulfilling that promise. Peter swings our spotlight on 2 Peter 3, verse 9, which says, The Lord wants everyone to come to repentance. He adds, I think you mentioned some time ago, the Bible teaches that only people who are elect or chosen before creation are those who would be saved. I'm confused and hope you can help me understand. Yeah, and there's two separate issues here, and it's a very complex subject, as we've talked about in the past. So uh, let me deal with each one individually. Uh, in Second Peter 3.9, Peter's describing why the end-time events predicted by God haven't yet taken place. Uh, the apparent delay is the result of God's patience toward humanity, giving every possible opportunity for individuals to come to repentance. Uh, the word for wishing or wanting there, depending on the English translation, is the Greek word uh, bulamai. And I believe the best translation here is that God does not wish anyone to perish. Uh, in that sense, it's describing the heart and the compassion of God. His personal desire would be for everyone to come to repentance rather than to perish in judgment. But God never forces a person to do something he or she is unwilling to do. Now that leads to the second issue. Uh, did I say the Bible teaches that some people are elect or chosen by God before creation? And the answer is, yes, I did, because that's what the Bible says. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul wrote, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then a few verses later, Paul connects God's choice to predestination. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's verse 11. Now, I believe in the doctrine of predestination and election because it is taught in the Bible. Uh, the wrinkle in all this is that I also believe I was saved when I consciously chose to place my faith in Christ. Now, those two truths, divine sovereignty and human freedom of action, seem irreconcilable, but What's impossible for humans is not impossible with God. A friend shared a great illustration with me that helped me in this regard. He compared the truths of God's election and the freedom of human choice to a set of railroad tracks. When we look down at the tracks, those two rails never touch. But if we turn and look at the tracks as they head out into the horizon, they appear to converge. This side of eternity, I don't know how divine sovereignty and human freedom can be reconciled, though I see both taught in the Bible. But I believe there is an ultimate answer that will make perfect sense in eternity. In the meantime, I have to walk by faith and trust that God can work out all those details. Boy, that's a great answer to a tough question. Thank you, Charlie. Lynn says, I was reviewing Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73 says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. Here's my question. Are gatekeepers part of the Levitical group since they always seem to be clumped in between Levites and singers? And are they the gatekeepers of the cities or the temple? Yeah, and the gatekeepers that are mentioned there were Levites, and I believe they were watching over the gates of the temple. Now, I say that because of 1 Chronicles chapter 9. In that passage, uh, between verses 17 and 27 there, 
Uh, it lists the gatekeepers who were taken into Babylonian captivity, and it has a few key points that help connect with Nehemiah 7. 1 Chronicles 9.17 lists the same families as Nehemiah 7, and verse 18 specifically identifies them as Levites. And then in verse 23, it says their responsibility was to, quote, guard the gates of the house of the Lord. And then verse 25, it says they came from their villages and worked at the temple, guarding the gates for a period of seven days at a time. Beginning in verses 26 and 27, it also says some guarded the rooms connected with the temple and its treasury. So the term gatekeeper was expanded to include the doors inside the temple complex, but those individuals were Levites and they were watching over the gates of the temple. Let's squeeze in one more question here on the land and the book. At the time of the rapture, will children who have not reached the age of accountability be raptured? Is there any scripture to uh, answer this? Yeah, I don't know of any scripture that directly answers that question, but I see two passages that might indirectly help. Uh, The first is 1 Corinthians 7, 14. There Paul tells believing spouses who are married to non-believers that if the partner's willing to remain married, they are to stay married. And one reason was because of the impact on the children. He says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're now holy. What it suggests is that the children of believers are set apart in some way because of the believing spouse. Now, I can't press that too far, but it does seem to suggest that there is some way God treats them special. The second passage is Matthew 24, 19. Jesus describes the middle of the tribulation, and he talks about pregnant women and nursing mothers, which tells me that women are going to continue having children. So uh, the question is, if God would take away all children before the age of accountability, why would he choose then to take some at the rapture while leaving others unborn immediately afterward? Ultimately, I leave it in God's hands, remembering Abraham's words to God in Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's a look at questions here on The Land and the Book. We're up next. We're going to hear from Charlie and his devotion. Stick around. Whether you're listening online or on air, we're glad to have you part of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and if you're like me, you've come to that point in your Christian life where you realize studying the Scripture yields up tremendous gems of wisdom, sometimes in the strangest places, as we hear today from Charlie's devotional. Where are we going, Charlie? Uh, We're heading back to the book of Proverbs to uh, look at the last two of the four wise animals. All right. Uh, The focus of most pilgrims to Israel can be reduced to two subjects of interest, the land and the book. (laughs) Come to think of it, sounds like a good title for a radio program, doesn't it? Uh, But seriously, most pilgrims to Israel want to visit the places they've heard about all their lives. They want to see Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, the Jordan River, Mount Carmel, and all those other ancient places. But the trip is more than just a tour of historical sites. They want to see these places because that's where the events of the Bible took place. They ultimately want to connect what they're seeing to the book they've been reading all their lives. I usually don't talk too much about the animals of the Bible before a trip because it's not as easy to predict if or when they might show up during our time in the land. Now, I do remember one trip where every animal imaginable seemed to show up at just the right time. It actually became a joke during the trip. Okay, it's now time to cue the sheep. It's about time to cue the ibex. It's time to cue the camels. It was almost as if we had people hiding behind the rocks waiting for our bus to show up 
so they could push the animals into sight just in time for the group to see them. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time, so I'm constantly scanning the horizon looking for those ever-elusive illustrations. Now, last week, we began a study of the four wise animals of Proverbs 30. These are the animals that seem insignificant to most, but that offer some very practical lessons on life. The ant taught us the importance of foresight and planning, and the coney or rock badger taught us the importance of taking care and being cautious in uncertain times, of balancing risk with security. This week, we'll continue our journey through the land, and along the way, I'll be watching carefully for the last two animals mentioned in Proverbs 30. I wasn't able to spot our third animal until we were more than halfway through our trip, and he turned up in a most unusual spot. We had just walked into the cool shadows of the man-made bell-shaped caves carved into the soft chalk at Beit Guvreen, and there in front of us was a single, solitary locust sitting on the ground, also enjoying the shade of the cave. The cool, damp floor had slowed him down, and we were able to catch him. Gather around and take your pictures. This is a locust. This locust looked almost identical to a large grasshopper we might see here at home. There doesn't appear to be anything fearful about this tiny creature. In fact, he was little more than a snack for John the Baptist. But in a mysterious process still not fully understood, there are times when these solitary locusts mass together into a swarm. And while a single locust is an easy prey, a locust swarm can have tens of millions of locusts, making them an unstoppable army. And this is when we listen again to the words of Proverbs 30. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Joel described the devastation caused by successive invasions of locusts. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Locusts could destroy fields of grain and strip the bark off trees, wiping out all plant life in their path. Those who managed to live through a locust swarm understood the point being made by the writer of Proverbs. Locusts might seem leaderless, but they can wisely work together to defeat anything in their path. So what's the lesson for us? If the insignificant locusts can do so much by cooperating and working together, what might we be able to accomplish if we cooperate and work together? Three animals down, one to go. And we spot the fourth animal from Proverbs 30 as we stand on the ruins that were once Old Testament Beit Shemesh. This is the city to which the Ark of the Covenant came after spending seven months with the Philistines. The site sits on the edge of the Sorek Valley, just across from Zorah and Eshtaol, the boyhood towns of Samson. As we stand on Beit Shemesh, I'm just about to talk about this city and the valley when I stop. A short distance away on one of the ancient walls, I spot one of the ever-present lizards that live throughout Israel. Actually, some of the group have already seen lizards on this trip, at Megiddo and Caesarea Philippi, on Masada, and scurrying through the mud-brick ruins at Beersheba. But this lizard is almost preening for the group, puffing out its chest as if to say, Welcome to my castle. I'm the master of all I survey. Then, as if tiring of our company, it runs down the other side of the wall and disappears from view. And now we hear the last of the wise animal comparisons made by the writer of Proverbs 30. The lizard you may grasp with the hands. 
yet it is in the king's palaces. Certainly the lizard is small, insignificant, and sometimes despised as a nuisance, but it's also present virtually everywhere in Israel. I've seen them darting among the rocks in ancient ruins and running across the patios of nice hotels. Before the invention of glass windows, thermal sealed doors, and pest control companies, lizards were the ever-present guests in virtually every home in Israel. But what lesson are we to learn by watching these lizards gallop across the stones of Beit Shemesh? I think the writer points to the lizard to teach us the importance of perseverance. Lizards might seem worthless and defenseless. After all, the writer notes that someone with quick enough reflexes can reach out and grab one in his hands. But the humble lizard had, as we might say today, learned how to live like a king. Through his perseverance, he'd made his way into the king's palace which is more than the average Israelite of that day could say. The final two tiny animals in Proverbs 30, each was small, almost to the point of insignificance, and yet each teaches an important lesson about wisdom to those willing to listen. Someone who is wise knows, like the locusts, that those who work together in unity can accomplish much. Likewise, someone who's wise knows, like the lizard, that even the humblest can, through perseverance and hard work, succeed. So, have you mastered the wise lessons of these most humble of creatures, the ant, the coney, the locust, and the lizard? Four small but wise creatures offering four important but often neglected truths about how life works. And they can all still be seen on a trip to Israel today. Interesting, Charlie. I'm following along and uh, trying to ponder the perseverance of a lizard and a locust. But uh, there's some very important lessons from those little guys. Yeah, and that's why I love Proverbs. It took the uh, the most mundane things and taught some of the most profound truths from them. And you did a great job of bringing those lessons out. Thank you. Hey, maybe uh, the conversation that we've been having today, the devotional that you just heard, or something else stirred up in your own heart a question about Israel, the Middle East. Maybe it's an issue in the Christian life or a Bible passage that uh, you've been looking through. But why not ask that question of our team here? Here's how you can connect with us. Email thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Here's the cool thing. When you do share your question, you get an actual personalized response. Just fire off a question, whatever it is that uh, has got you confused or troubled or worried or maybe just puzzling, and then get a personalized answer. Very, very cool. The email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Two favors we'd like to ask of you. Number one, would you share us with a friend? Would you be willing to tell somebody that you care about? Let them know how the land and the book impacts your life, opens your eyes, maybe broadens your thinking, and tell them where they can listen to the land and the book. By the way, the answer is thelandandthebook.org. We're available online during the live broadcast, and anytime afterward, you can play the program again. The land and the book.org. Second favor, if the program is connecting with you, would you send us an email? That's right, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. If you're a Facebook fan, check out our page, best accessed with a quick click to our website, the land and the book. You can't miss the Facebook icon. Give it a click and then enjoy the latest news stories, photographs, and more at our Facebook page. The Land of the Book comes to you as the hard work of a great team. And that, of course, includes Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, Dan Anderson, our producer, 
My name is John Geiger with a big thank you to this station for providing airtime. Do come back for more here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.